Hello everyone, my name is Kevin Verga, and I'm joined here with my co-host Devin D'Agostino. Hey everyone. Hi Devin. And in just a few seconds, me and Devin are going to stop making sense. And what that means is, every episode, Devin and I are going to choose a new Talking head song to analyze and ponder. And we're going to let our minds wander and take us to uncharted realms of science and comedy and music. And we'll answer such burning questions as, who took the money? Who took the money away? Where? Where is my common sense? Why stay in college? Why go to night school? And most importantly, where is that large automobile? All of this and more coming up on Devin and Kevin Stop Making Sense. Devin, welcome to the first episode of our show. Thanks so much, man. I'm looking forward to it. And every time I hear those lines in the intro, I just want to start singing once in a lifetime. Yeah. And as soon as you hear that, you just want to get going with it. It's so hard not to say those lyrics without saying it with the cadence that David sings it in the songs. Yeah. Well, I go to college. Well, well. <laughs> and to do the, to do the accompanying <laughs> movements that go along. But we'll get into all this, into yeah, Stop yeah. Making Sense itself when we stop making sense. But I think uh, since it's based on talk, Talking Heads, maybe we should describe what the band is like, its participants, its history. And uh, for that, we'll turn it over to Devin to get a little history lesson on the talking head. Cool, cool. So I'll just give a bit of an intro to our podcast as a whole here too. Basically the idea is two friends love talking heads and we wanted to use talking head songs as a jumping off point for conversation. Um, actually the whole conception of the podcast sort of came from, we were on our friend's podcast, uh, Rachel Malik, she does her life and we were discussing the entertainment we, come in, we keep coming back to, which for Kevin and I, of course, was the talking head. Near the close of the conversation, we considered the disappointment of sharing something that you like and not feeling that that enjoyment of it is reciprocated. Our friend eventually concluded that it was important that we had different opinions on things or we would never have anything to talk about. Mm -hmm. And she said to us, she was like, you couldn't talk about the talking heads all the time, could you? <laughs> Which and Kevin and I... Listened, we said, yes, we absolutely <laughs> Simultaneously, you said, yes, we could. And the podcast was born. And, and not only do we like the talking heads, we just seem to like talking and to talk to each other. So that's why the beauty of this podcast is we can really take root in the talking heads. But like we said earlier, just talking and we're each going to choose a new topic to let our minds journey to and maybe learn something ourselves and then take that knowledge and that love of the band and turn it over to any of you listening at home and uh, see where that takes us in life from episode to episode. And we're both very excited. This first episode, we're going to start with the first song on the first album by the talking heads. Uh-oh, love comes to town. Yeah, so actually, just I sort of missed your original question, Kevin, but I'll go a little bit into the background of Talking Heads and get to that first song. So Talking Heads. Their band, they started in 1975, released their first album, Talking Heads 77, in 1977, and were around together till 91. The members of the band are David Byrne, he is the guitarist and lead vocals, Chris France, who does drums and steel pan, Jerry Harrison, guitar, keyboards, and backing vocals, and Tina Weymouth, the great bass guitarist. Cool thing about the band, too, is it was basically David Byrne and Chris France were friends. They needed a bassist, they couldn't find a bassist. Tina Weymouth was Chris France's girlfriend. I think they're married now, or still are married. 
and they're like, will you be the bassist of our band? I don't think she even played bass before, but she picked it up. She learned how to, and it's totally like a cool, uh, just a really cool beginning. Yeah, really just like artistic minds that right place, right time. And to be dating Tina Weymouth and be like, hey, can you play bass? Like what a inciting moment in music history that is like to ask her and then for her to turn into one of the most influential bassists of all time, most heavily sampled bassists when they went to Tom Tom Club. But we'll get into that eventually. Yeah. But I'm, I'm glad when you introduced Chris France that you said drums and steel pan, which is nice foreshadowing to the song we're about to <laughs> discuss. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah, just a little bit more on that beginning. So their first album they released in 1977. And I looked it up, right, because we were talking about other albums that were released that year. It was an amazing year for music. Mm-hmm. Sex Pistols released their first album, Nevermind the Bullocks. The Clash released their first album, The Clash. Iggy Pop released Lust for Life. ELO released Out of the Blue. Bob Marley released Exodus. Billy Joel released The Stranger. David Bowie released Heroes. Fleetwood Mac released Rumors. It was the year of Elvis Presley's final record. There was a Saturday Night Fever album, yeah. ABBA, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, The Beach Boys, ACDC, Steve Miller, Elvis Costello, <laughs> Kansas, Kiss, Al Green, Meatloaf, Jimmy Buffett, Jackson Brown, Cheap Trick, Queen, The Ramones, Steely Dan, Leonard Skinner, The Jam, Air Clack and Hart, Pink Floyd, Rush and Sticks all had albums that year. It so was I gotta a- say, how in just a year packed with some of the most seminal albums by some of the biggest names did this album, Talking Heads 77, stand out? from really predominantly classic rock, uh, reggae, and punk rock music, um, like Television or The Sex Pistols, or Steely Dan and Queen and Billy Joel. Uh, something about this album, and maybe this song, just latched onto people's ears and just rocketed the Talking Heads into stardom almost overnight uh, in downtown New York. Yeah, totally. So Talking Heads, they're like at the forefront of New Wave which is basically a pop rock punk combination that's basically rock without the blues, right? And they almost, they, people refer to their music as avant-garde, which is really cool and really what their music is. But to really talk about how much of an influence they had, because no one was making music like the Talking Heads were. You have all these artists coming out in 1977, but nobody was making music like the Talking Heads. And to get into it, let's talk about the first song on their first album. So Talking Heads 77, first track on it is Uh Oh, Love Comes to the Town. Yeah, you want to just talk about a little bit about how you interpreted the song and what was so cool about it to you? This song sticks with me, and it's like (laughs) the opening bass and guitar chords is just like such a great introduction to the Talking Heads, Uh, and then right into like this funky groove that Tino lays down, and then all of a sudden you're thrown into these like esoteric lyrics that David lays down about how I interpret it, love in his regard and something that i think stands out in this song um, about how he describes love is that he kind of contradicts himself and that's kind of something that the talking heads like to do is to contradict themselves over their career and then also within their own song so just to introduce the song the first verse is wait wait for the moment to come stand up stand up and take my hand believe believe in mystery love love is simple as one two three you're like, oh, this is a nice love song. We're going to lay it down. Nothing too out of the ordinary here. But really what sticks with me about the song and where I let my mind wander for this song is the type of love he describes and some of the lyrics that really hit me really hard as a uh, cocky elitist person <laughs> is the ones that come out right after that, which is 
I'm a know-it-all. I'm the smartest man around. That's right. You learn real fast through the smartest girl in town. And that one like hits me a lot because in terms of my own personal relationships, if we're going to go there this early, that like really resonates with me so much of walking around thinking I'm a know-it-all, thinking I'm the smartest person around, but then really feeling humbled and feeling like you're learning a lot from this love that you are surrounded with in your life. And he personifies it with a, a female voice that is the smartest girl in town. And it just like hit me so hard. And that was the lyric when I first listened to it. Musically, it's very catchy and a great album opener, but also he diverts from a simple love song where he literally calls it simple to kind of playing on his own know-it-allness and the female counterpart to that in his life. Yeah. I mean, that was my, it's uh, at the end of the day, it's just a love song, right? It's a love song, but it's about driving people nuts when you're in love, right? Yeah. Distracting them from daily life, causing them to mess up work. And that's like a common theme in David Byrne's music. I think Mm -hmm. like his songs, this song especially, it's fun, it's easygoing, it's got that kettle drum, which makes it nice, right? But there's also like this anxiety behind all the songs. And that's almost like a common theme throughout his music is they're happy go lucky. But there's almost this mania, right? It's like a naivety overlaid on neuroticism. There's yeah. this neuroticism running through it, but he comes across and stop making sense, right? The idea of the, the thing that we jumped off this whole podcast, that um, film, that concert film, he comes out in a big suit three or four sizes too big for him. It's this big iconic moment. And he just dances around and has fun. It's like a kid going into his dad's closet and picking up a suit and just having fun with it. He does all these childish things, but behind it is really this like very adult, very, um, keep going back to neuroticism because there is, it's like neurotic, the music. Yeah. I really like how you said that because what I wrote down when I was writing down like my notes for this song is that I wrote, it's love accurately portrayed. It's not just the lovey-dovey romanticism that a lot of, you know, maybe certain artists releasing music like ELO or Billy Joel or Steely Dan, especially Billy Joel on The Stranger. There's a lot of loving songs, but this one really has a realism associated with it that acknowledges the kind of darker underbelly that comes with love that includes feeling lesser than the person you're loving feeling like you're losing all sorts of logic, like the lines, where, where is my common sense? How did I get into a jam like this? It's really just, I don't know, exemplary songwriting in that it's just so real. And that's just such a nice figureheaded introduction to the band as a whole. That's going to carry throughout their whole entire career. Yeah. And I agree with everything you said. Um, And I think we'll continue to see this throughout Talking Head songs. I want to get into the meat of the podcast where we sort of go off because our podcast, we want it to be accessible to non-Talking Heads fans. Although Mm -hmm. we hope after you listen, you do get into Talking Heads. So before we move on to the part where we stop making sense, is there like a line that stuck with you? I have a couple of lines that I want to talk about that stuck with me, but specific lines. I'm, I'm interested to hear what you are interested in in this song. Yeah, yeah. So the line that actually stuck with me has a lot to do with our current moment, right? So we're Mm -hmm. recording this in April of 2020. And the line I got stuck on was, I've called in sick. I won't go to work today. I'd rather be with the one I love. I neglect my duties. I'd be in trouble. But so it's this romanticism of staying home, which is almost ironic in the moment we're in. Because obviously with COVID-19, we're all stuck in our homes. We're trapped in our homes, Mm self-distancing. And it was just funny to me to hear people talking about like, He's saying, I just want to be stuck at home, right? I just want to be with my girlfriend. I just want to have fun. Meanwhile, all I want to do is leave the house. And it's an interesting line, especially for this moment in time. 
how quickly it changed. Just a quick diatribe. Like NPR released because of COVID songs that have changed their meaning because of the current situation. And at top of the list was Life During Wartime. Really? Although it's obviously talking about war instead of a disease, it just was something that really changes with the times. It's amazing how like a timeless song like this can you can find meaning even in an unprecedented situation, which is the COVID-19 quarantine that we're, we're currently in. But I'm glad you mentioned that line particularly because that's the one that I have like a huge circle around, especially that last line, which is I neglect my duties, I'll be in trouble because he wants to call in sick. And that's really what like stuck with me because I feel like I've been there to a certain extent of being immobilized by love. And there's kind of a few sides that I want to like think about because I have my own experiences of that, of literally just waking up with a person you really care about and thinking like, I'm going to go to work today. I'm with this person that I love. How am I going to get out of bed? How am I going to leave them? Why would I leave them? So I was trying to like find words that are in any language, not only just the English language that describe this immobilization by means of love. So some things are like, I am smitten. I'm infatuated with someone. I know in the Sicilians have the idea of getting struck by a thunderbolt where you literally feel it so deep in you that you're almost struck by lightning. But I couldn't really find a word for it. But in searching it, I Googled paralyzed by love. And I found this pretty wild article from ABC News from August 17th of 2009, I believe, about a man who suffers, quote-unquote, attacks of love. Devin, do you want to take a guess of what attacks of love means before I describe it? So what I'm picturing in my head right now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm pretty accurate right now, is like a bunch of people in hard costumes attack, like just jumping out of alleyways and stuff and attacking That's them, trying to beat exactly them up. exactly right. He gets yeah, attacked every day. Picture. Someone waits outside his apartment and gets attacked. They attack him wearing... <laughs> Giant heart costumes. Giant heart costumes. Uh, very good guess. You're, mm. you're close. Really? Okay. Um, so he has a condition called narcolepsy with cataplexy. Can you guess what that is? Narcolepsy with cataplexy? Well, I know narcolepsy is when you fall asleep a lot. But cataplexy is only making me feel think about caterpillars. Yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing he falls asleep randomly and turns into a caterpillar. Close, close. <laughs> so narcolepsy with cataplexy in this in this specific person so narcolepsy is like you said that something triggers you for your body to shut off in a way that is equivalent to sleep so you'll have these fainting spells and his stimulant that causes that is signs of affection is signs of love so he has to avoid these attacks of love which is actively avoiding forms of love and affection and he has, they describe his house. This is wild to me. I wish I had that. <laughs> There's a lot of heartbreak. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost heartbreaking in itself, in my opinion. Yeah. He has one wedding photo. Every other photo of him and his wife is like stashed away in the attic. And they have him quoted as like, yeah, that was a good day, but I really got to go. And like, he really couldn't stay around it. Otherwise, he'll fall asleep. And touching, kissing, and even cuteness. They describe him going to his three-year-old niece's soccer uh, game and being so overwhelmed with how cute they were coming out on like their first game <laughs> that he fell asleep throughout the whole match. And uh, 
it's just pretty wild to me. What do you think about that? How do you feel hearing this? <laughs> the only thing that's coming to mind, and maybe it's too far for the first episode, but I sometimes get in fights with my girlfriend about falling asleep after we're intimate. And now I almost want to say that I have narcolepsy cataplexy to get out of the this. excuse before. It's, it's a good one. Narcolepsy good with one, cataplexy. Right? Yeah, it's like, I, sorry, I have narcolepsy cataplexy. That's why I'm falling asleep afterwards. It's not you. It's just because I love you so much. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's an odd condition because the next point is that he feels a reprieve when he goes to work. And it's an emotionally neutral place and an escape from his loved ones where he doesn't have to worry about his narcoleptic tendencies. And it's almost like the exact opposite of what a lot of people feel is that they are at work, they feel emotionally deprived and they can't wait to go back to their loved ones, kind of how they're desc- described yeah. in Uh-Oh, Love Comes to Town. Why would I ever leave? This guy's <laughs> like, right. I gotta go because I literally need to get out of bed. Otherwise I will continue falling asleep if I love you too much. And also going back to another Talking Head song in the song, Found a Job. David says, if your work's not what you love, something isn't right. Yeah. But if he literally loved his work, if he loved his job, he couldn't go to work either to, as an excuse. <laughs> yeah, my mind went exactly there. It was like, so he can't love his job. And also, it's interesting, right? I mean, it's psychological, so like, we shouldn't put too much into it. That he's, because I know that narcolepsy is related to when you're putting some strong emotional experiences, that's when you fall asleep. That's what triggers it. Mm-hmm. So love just happens to be a strong emotional experience. And this may be taking it too far, but like, how do you know when you're truly in love, right? When you I mean, asleep. like, when you fall asleep. But that's what I mean is that that's his way of knowing that he's truly in love with something. Again, it's difficult because psychologically, it's probably just the emotional stimulation. But isn't that interesting? Like, if you've ever been with someone and you're like, oh, is this the person that I'm in love with? Or am I just caught up in the moment? Mm-hmm. Is, yeah. Does he have a way of telling? He knows I really love this person because I fall asleep every time I'm around them. <laughs> It's so odd. Like it's almost the exact opposite of the wiring in my brain that I've, I've, you know, like, I guess when I'm in love, I'm like, I want to spend a lot of time with them. I don't want to be asleep. I'll stay up late texting them or talking them into the night. And when I go to work, I'm thinking about them. And I guess that's what a lot of people, that's like the romantic ideas that maybe Billy Joel's singing about in The Stranger or other songs off that album. But I don't know, that one just like, that's just where my search history went in terms of trying to find a word to describe this feeling of being immobilized by love, searching paralyzed by love, and then finding an, ex- an actual case of a person that becomes paralyzed because of their loving tendencies. It was wild to me. So that's where my brain went based off this song and this episode. No, that's fascinating, man. That's really cool. And it's interesting too, because I ended up going with language as well. Mm-hmm. But before we get into that... How about a quick word from our sponsors? All right, folks, our first episode, our first sponsor. Let's go to the sponsor. Let's hear it. From the people who brought you those gross, veiny latex horse masks and nightmares comes the newest Cronenbergian horror, the pug mask. How many times has this happened to you? You're the phantom of the opera and have nothing to wear to the masquerade ball. Well, fear no more, because with the new hyper-realistic pug mask, you'll be the most grotesque monster at any party. Modeled after a dog breed known for its variety of health problems, including, but not limited to, necrotizing, meningoencephalus, eye prolapse, and a compacted breathing pathway which results in inability to properly regulate internal body temperature and later results in regularly boiling from the inside out. Who wouldn't want to wear the face of generations of inbreeding? 
The Pug Mask, sure to bring your costume from uncanny valley to abject horror. With realistic sunken eyes, eyelids, and moving mouth, it is sure to strike fear into even the bravest mailman. Don't be surprised if you wake up screaming with your very own pug mask sewn to your face. Pug mask. Because hockey masks are so last season. Available now at your nearest satanic temple. Thank you, Devin. Make sure you use pug love, that's P-U-G-L-U-V at partycity.gov to get your pug mask now. Now back to the show. So for our next segment, we're going to make things flippy floppy, another talking head song. Nice. And we're going to go on to our next topic. So when I was thinking about this song, I was trying to come up with some interesting tangent sort of related to it. And I decided to look up the origin of the word uh-oh. Hmm. So uh-oh is interesting too, because it also happens to be the name of a 1992 album by David Byrne, an excellent album, uh-oh. Maybe we'll talk about it on a later podcast. Hmm. But uh-oh is an interjection, which according to the Merriam Dictionary was first used in 1925. And that's basically where my research stopped. I couldn't find anything else on that. <laughs> um, it was first used in, it was first popularly used in like a Langston Hughes play. But I ended up finding, interestingly enough, in my research for uh-oh, the origin of another interjection. Huh. So like, you know, huh? I, it's, hard, it's not coming across on a podcast, but like, huh. the, exactly. The clar- hmm. When you're trying to clarify something, though, when someone says something crazy, you're like, huh? That kind mm-hmm. of huh. Oh, Perfect. That kind of huh. Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. I didn't even think of that. The other, huh? Cause there's like, huh. And well, hmm. what did they say before? Huh? So like, let's say you're listening to me talk and wax philosophical and this is 1919. What, what did they say when I'm saying something interesting? So this is actually different than that. So huh is different because um, scientists determined that it might be a universal word. So give a little background. This is all based on a 2013 linguistic study called is huh a universal word conversational infrastructure and the convergent evolution of linguistic items. So basically it's about the linguistics of the word, huh? It was a study and I'm sorry if you're listening, Mark Dingmans and if I've totally slaughtered your name, but it's, it was by Mark, maybe it's Dingmans and colleagues. Mm-hmm. And basically it was to study this idea of a universal word. So there's certain fundamental pr- principles in linguistics. Basically what there are, is that words are completely arbitrary. So words are historical, but not natural. Like I don't look at the lamp next to me and something about the word lamp, something about the lamp itself makes me see lamp. It's just an arbitrary set of sounds that we've given to it, that we've labeled it with. So words have to be arbitrary, which doesn't mean a word can have any sound though, because languages are limited in the sounds we produce. Mm -hmm. It's like accents, right? When we're trying to learn a different language, we may not be able to grasp the accent completely because our language hasn't suited us with those skills. So from these two principles, we'd assume the two completely independent languages would not develop the same word, which means universal words are very unlikely. But there are a few of them, one of them being, huh? So these scientists hypothesize that, huh, is a universal word. They probably hypothesize that because when you introduce yourself as a psycholinguist, probably most people go, huh? What's that? <laughs> Globally, they, people say, they say huh? Uh-oh. Or, uh-oh. Oh, exactly. Be a conversation I want to be in. Or maybe it is. Right. I, I think we'd get along with a lot of psycholinguists. After this linguistics. paper, I think it'd be, I would be interested to talk to one. <laughs> but to find out if huh is a universal word, they collected and analyzed informal conversations from 10 languages around the world to see if huh came up. So they had some of the classics like Spanish, Italian, Chinese, Russian, and Dutch, but they also used some more unfamiliar to us. Again, if I mispronounce anything... I'm sorry. They used Icelandic, 
Lao, the official language of Laos, Chapala, which is an indigenous Ecuadorian language, Siwu, which is spoken in the mountainous part of the Vola region of Ghana, and Murin Patha, an Australian Aboriginal language. The idea here being is if they get enough diverse languages, hopefully there was no cross-cultural um, sharing of words. So huh came up completely unique. And what they found by listening to conversations from all of these different cultures was that not only did all these languages have an interjection to ask for clarification, which is interesting, something to quickly provide clarification, but they all sounded a lot like, huh. So they had the same intonation, the same sounds to it. But because science is never easy, not only did they have to prove that, huh, is universal, but that it's actually a word in the first place. Because, right, because again, it's, is this actually a word when we go, huh? Uh So to be a new, to be a word, you need two things, integration and conventionalism. Integration means that you're part of the linguistic system, that it actually is a meaningful word in a sentence. And conventionalism means that they have to be learned. So for instance, grunting, mm, mm, whatever, right, isn't a word because we don't integrate it into the linguistic system and you don't have to learn how to grunt. It's innate. So to make a long story short, huh, fits those requirements and therefore is a word. And also the fact that we don't hear animals going, huh, further suggests it's word status. So it's not found in the animal kingdom. But what about it being universal? So remember that words are thought to be arbitrary, right? There's nothing about um, a lamp. There's no essence of lamp that makes me go, lamp, but we put these labels onto it. And yet, huh, is in all languages that they investigated. And they um, defined it as a monosyllable with at most a glottal onset consonant, an unrounded low front central vowel, and questioning intonation. Or in English, (laughs) or as we talk about in English, huh, is always made with an H sound followed by a glottal space. So that's like the space between uh and o in uh uh-oh, returning to our initial uh, sound here, glottal space, followed by a vowel with a question voice at the end. And they also found, huh, was in 21 additional languages. So all of this is probably having you say, huh, why huh? (laughs) Huh has now lost all meaning to me, but (laughs) regardless. It'd be really interesting if the song was, huh, Love Comes to Town? It'd be a very different (laughs) song. More glottal spaces, I'd say, for sure, in that version of the song. Yeah, totally. Um, So the explanation is uh, actually an evolutionary theory. And big thing about me, love dinosaurs, right? Paleontology. Mm -hmm. So as soon as I saw evolutionary theory, I was on board. So the researchers claim that, huh, is a result of convergent evolution. So convergent evolution is basically when selective pressures in the environment result in the development of similar traits. For instance, dolphins and sharks, they're not genetically similar. However, they share a similar body plan because they inhabit the same environment. So their environment forces those traits that the fin, the tail, the dolphin, sharks um, shape. So the environment that brought about, huh, was conversation. So conversation is quick especially like with my family or when we're talking with our friends. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get in fast, you'll lose your chance to contribute. And misunderstanding can quickly derail a conversation and even leave the person you're talking to offended. So we need an evolutionary strategy to ask for clarification fast and efficiently. Huh? Is quick, clear, and requires little energy. It's basically like the speaking equivalent of texting HBU or LOL. So, huh? allows us to ask clarification quickly without derailing the conversation and make sure that we understand what's going on. And it's theorized that other interjections like, uh uh-oh, play a similar role. So yeah, so I just thought that was cool. It's interesting because I'm sure the people that 
in the evolutionary, you know, tree of humans that didn't really pick up on, uh oh, right away, they all got picked up by a pterodactyl and was carried off. And they're like, <laughs> someone's like, uh oh, and people are like, what's, what's, uh oh, what is, and then they're already gone. And <laughs> yeah. so it's pretty interesting because, like, huh, really means what do you mean, or I didn't catch that all in one, in just one syllable. And that's exactly. really an amazing thing that we've had that we kind of take for granted in, in linguistics. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, it's cool because that means you can go any place in the world, right? You can meet some group of people completely isolated from the society and go, huh? And they'll understand what that means. It's a universal word is their theory here. You've used the word universal. So if some sort of alien species came down and then they're like, glee, bloop, glop, glop, and we're like, what? Huh? they'd be like, oh, sorry, we'll, we'll dumb it down for you so you can pick it up. Yeah, <laughs> sorry about that. It's interesting because it's a question of how languages develop, right? There's theories about this with life too. Is all life carbon-based? So is it essential to life to be carbon-based? So the question is, is it essential to conversation to be fast-paced and to have short words to get into conversation? I'm not a linguist, but just thinking about it, I would say, yeah, right? That if language develops, I mean, conversation, there seems to only be sort of one plan to conversation. You talk, I talk. If that's the case, then, huh, makes sense. But it also has to do, too, um, that, that thing I mentioned before, the glottal onside happening. The glottal oh, space. Okay. Um, it has to do with our throat structure. The fact that, huh, doesn't require us to lift our tongues. It's a very low effort word because it sort of just comes from the back of our throat. So theoretically, in other organisms, right, if there was like an alien and it didn't develop the same vocal cords as us, huh, wouldn't be as easy to produce and they might produce something else. I see. And while you're saying this, I've noticed that I'm going like, hmm, ah, which is also (laughs) back in my glottal space and is really just saying I'm listening and I'm understanding. But if those hmms turn to huh, with that kind of tail at the end that raises up, that indicates a question, it's really very minute differences between the hmm and the huh but one means i totally am with you alien i get it you want me to take you to your leader but if i say huh then i'm like alien i really i have no idea what you're saying or i don't know what the glottal space is and you're gonna have to clarify that for me uh really fascinating i'm glad that (laughs) you went there but i also love how it started with well, I wonder what uh-oh is. And then they're like, uh-oh was made in 1925. We don't know anything else about it. And you're like, all right, well, I guess I'll shift directions and go to uh-huh, because that's how they all felt when they were researching uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, it's uh-oh. What are we going to do? But what this study sort of suggests is that uh-oh is probably something similar. It's just an easy way to communicate, right? Just like you said, if you see that pterodactyl zooming at you, you're able to go uh-oh, and the other person can get it, then you've saved your life, right? It gives you an advantage. let's do (laughs) maybe we should act one out right let's do it let's do you're an alien all right and i'm a caveman and we're trying to communicate am i gonna (laughs) speak in english or is this up to me i think you should speak an alien at first (laughs) or let's just let's just see how we go let's just see how it goes oh come in huh sorry i forgot that uh you guys still have glottal spaces around here uh, I was saying, um, I have a great deal for you. It is a mask that I know your species likes glorpins. Are you familiar huh? with glorpins? Oh, sorry. Your species likes pugs. Pugs are cute dogs. And apparently they have tons of internal sickness that for some reason you species enjoy. 
So I have 300 pug masks in my schnippen. And if you want to, you know, maybe sell some of these pug masks to just like a few of your counterparts of your other species, you sell them. And then they sell some of these pug masks to other people. And we just rein in the profits and bring them back to me, Mr. Glorfenstein. We'll take it from there. What do you say? Are you interested in this pug mask venture capitalism? Booga booga. Me caveman. Me no speak English. Huh? Uh Uh-oh. I went back too far. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, yeah, that's how basically, huh, began. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I like how polite you were as a caveman that you let me give my whole speech. (laughs) And then you're like, I'm still a caveman. Yeah, I like to think that I was just in caveman zone. I wasn't even really paying attention, (laughs) staring at a wall. You know how cavemen did. You know how they were. Well, something, to bring it back to the song, Mm -hmm. these monosyllabic words that are universal, I noticed that David Byrne focuses a lot on syllables and vowel sounds to the point where sometimes he rearranges a word or a sentence just to make it sound really nice. He introduces himself really well in this song because he starts with like a quick wait and he repeats it. Wait, wait, stand up, stand up, believe, believe, love, love in that first verse. And they all are these one syllable things that have strong middle vowels that he's able to kind of bend and twist and uh, shape them to how he likes it. And that's just such like a David Byrne thing that's stuck out to me because this is really the introduction to the talking heads to the world if you bought their first album this is the first song and that's the first line and he's really good at just taking these small words like wait or love or stand and making them so unique in the song and make them musical it's really magical in a way hearing him do this what i mentioned before about like that childness to it the fact that it's almost naive is that he uses these things Uh uh-oh right he repeats himself it's like a kid almost Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's dealing with, just like you said, when you were talking originally about like love with these really deep, intimate parts of human experience. And it lets you enter that way. It makes it accessible. But then you listen to the songs over and over as we have, and you get a whole new meaning out of them. Yeah, it's really amazing because I think it lent itself, the idea of kind of reverting back to this childhood or this younger version of yourself, because love kind of makes you do that to yourself you kind of lose control of your own brain and lose control of your own logic to the point where you're questioning your own common sense, like in this song. And uh, from a movie, I really like her. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the lines is, love is a form of socially acceptable insanity, where Mm -hmm. we all are just like, yeah, I totally, that's fine. Oh, they're just in love. Like young people in love, they'll do crazy thing for love. Like hold a stereo box outside someone's door while it's raining out. And I was like, yeah, that's just love. Or you just like can't stop thinking about someone. If I couldn't stop thinking about pug masks, that's a problem. Obviously knows if I'm thinking about pug masks every single night, that's a problem. I need to fix that. But if it's just someone that I'm infatuated with, that's like, oh, that's totally normal. You got a crush. You're infatuated. You love them. You're smitten. Don't fall asleep. Something like that. Like, you know, like yeah. these are all things that we accept in, in a society. Love is something that we want to be passionate and exciting. But when it gets too severe, right? In his case, he can't experience it because he'll pass out. But mm-hmm. even the case of the song, what is David Byrne talking about? It's a happy, you know, fun song about love. But at the same time, he's talking about this man who's about to lose his job because he's not doing it correctly. These people who keep screwing up at work, wanting to skip everything, wanting to give everything up. And that's like a lot of behind David, a lot of David Byrne's music too, is that 
yes, it seems nice and fun on the surface, but at the same time, when these things are taken too far, they get us into trouble. Yeah. And another line that sticks out that really embodies that, that I didn't really pick up until I started listening to this over and over again for this episode, is at the climax of the song where he really gets his David Byrne growl going is the lines, uh, jet pilot gone out of control, ship captain on the ground, stockbroker made a bad investment when love comes to town. So it's like these masculine, typically masculine figures, literally mm-hmm. losing their jobs, losing control of their plane of their jobs, of their livelihoods, because love, this embodied thing, this personified thing has come to town and kind of like is like this demonic thing that it's come to town almost like death. And it's now wreaking havoc on these people's lives when love is typically this lovey-dovey smushy thing that you like to fall into. Instead of falling into love, love has come directly to this town and is now making a rippling effects from its being there. It's quite amazing how he does that. I like that. Yeah, it's totally flips it on his head. And then he returns to the thing, right? As we overanalyze his song, but he's like, love, 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 love. It's as simple as one, two, three. It's love too. As much as we might think about it and try to explain it, at the end of the day, it's just something we experience an essential part of our existence that we can't get rid of. Yeah, the love part is simple. Love showed up, love's in town. You have to deal with the rippling consequences being a human that experiences it. But at the end of the day, love is more or less simple, as David Byrne says it. He thinks mm-hmm. it's a simple thing. So that's really a nice, again, contradiction that he likes to have in the lyrics that makes me appreciate his lyrical ability in this song in particular. Yeah, that's really cool. Cool. I think um, as we sort of come to a close here, we'll do our final segment, which is Stay Hungry which is something out of this conversation that we're going to be thinking about, something that we'll be considering until next time we meet. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll start with that one. I'm going to be thinking about glottal spaces a lot and just kind of picking up on when I do those universal words or sounds like, hmm, huh, uh uh-oh, I'll just kind of pick up on them. I can't think of any more now, but there's probably so many. One is uh or um, these like comfortable spaces that tell the person that is listening to us that we're thinking and to give us a second because our brains need time and they exist in space time. They need time to like cycle through all these ideas we have in our head. So uh, one second. So that's just another one. And I'm going to be hyper aware of it for the next week. <laughs> so thank you for that. I appreciate it. What about you? Um, I think I'm reflecting and it has a lot to do with um, what you brought up about that person who falls asleep when he's experiencing love is these abnormal experiences that make us take a step back from things we consider part of everyday life and reflect. We're in the midst of a global pandemic right now, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that a line in the song where he talks about staying home, something we all dream of doing, is now something we don't want to do. The fact that someone who suffers from a disorder that they fall asleep every time they're in love enjoys going to work and, you know, the monotonous every day than getting in those experiences. I think I'm just going to reflect on taking things that I find as a part of everyday life and looking at them from a new angle, like you with, huh, and uh. Huh. Uh. That's pretty great. I'm glad that we both influenced each other and we're going to carry the things that we talked about uh, with each other for the rest of the week because uh, that's really nice, you know? That just seems like a natural thing that we happen to do whenever we talk. Uh, And I hope that whoever's listening... Uh, carries those things with them until they hear us again. Deb, do you have any final words before we sign off? Huh. Nice. (laughs) 
we'll leave it at that. Mm. Uh, thank you all for listening. Devin, thanks for talking to me. It's always a pleasure. And uh, I hope more of this will come in the future. Uh, this has been Devin and Kevin. Stop making sense. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. Buy the pug mask. Buy the pug mask. Pug love. <laughs> all right. Until next time.